Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello, everyone. Today I am chatting with Dr. Julie Stamm. Julie is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She brings a unique perspective on the issues of repetitive brain trauma in youth sports as a scientist in the field, an anatomist with knowledge of childhood development, and an athletic trainer who has provided medical care for athletes. She values the importance of sports participation and believes children can both enjoy sports and protect their brain. She also just released a book this past summer, in July, called The Brain on Youth Sports, The Science, The Myths, and The Future. She's currently working on a variety of research projects on concussions and repetitive subconcussive impacts. In today's episode, we discuss repetitive brain trauma in youth sports and when and if we should be worried, defining chronic traumatic encephalopathy. We talk about myths about brain injury in children and how children can participate in youth sports like football and soccer without being subjected to a repetitive brain trauma. We also talk about much, much more. Let's dive right in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good morning, Dr. Stam. We're excited to have you on today. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So the topic that we are going to be talking about today is the Brain on Youth Sports, which is a a book that you recently wrote, which I am very excited to dig deeper into. And I think this is also just a popular topic that, you know, mothers start to, you know, and fathers start to think about as our children are getting older and starting to enroll themselves into sports. And we obviously know that there's a lot of positive effects of sports. And I know you have like a whole a whole chapter on that in the first part of your book. And it's really important to, you know, reinforce that there are so many positive things that come of children playing sports, but that, you know, there are also, you know, some significant things that we need to take into account, especially when it comes to some of these sports that might be, you know, higher in risk when it comes to brain trauma. So I'm excited to hear you talk about this today. I'm excited to be here and talk about this topic. And it's something that's really personal to me. I love sports so much, but I think we can play sports and get all those benefits without, you know, having a risk to the brain. Yes, exactly. So why don't we start with talking about, I think we could talk about maybe the sports that we are really looking at when we're talking about what is going to have that significant, like repetitive, concussive brain trauma to to youth. What, What sports are we looking at when we talk about that? 
Yeah. So football is the one that I think jumps to mind first. Um, it's the one that we hear the most about across the spectrum from concussions to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, players, uh, retired players who have been diagnosed with that neurodegenerative disease. Uh, so football is a high risk. It's the sport that has the highest uh, number of concussions and rate of concussions. It's also the sport with the highest number of repetitive impacts. But it's not the only sport of concern. Hockey, ice hockey is a, a higher risk sport as well with a similar number of repetitive impacts, slightly less, but still pretty high and a higher concussion risk. Soccer is another one, and that's the highest risk for female athletes. Um, soccer is the highest concussion risk uh, and also a fair number of repetitive impacts. Rugby is a sport that's really growing in the U.S., and that's another one that's of concern. Cheerleading is one that often gets overlooked, too. Uh, cheerleading is a big source of concussions, for, particularly for females. But you think about you know, your flyers, the, the athletes that are being thrown up in the air and going down you know, in a lot of cheer programs, practice in cafeterias or places without great you know, flooring and support. Uh, so that's another high-risk group. Yeah, when I was breezing through your book, I was really surprised to see the statistics about how often a so I think it was football um, that I was referring to, and it and it basically said you know in one particular season it would be you know if you weren't playing that sport it would be as if you were just hitting your head against the wall twenty five times a day, and it really kind of like stood out to me because I was like wow that's that's like really incredible when you think about it. And I also really loved how you touched on in the book, I think is really important if we could just go into why, you know, a young person's brain is so much more vulnerable. And you kind of talked about kids, you know, at that eight, nine, 10, 11 years old are kind of like these bobbleheads because their heads are growing so fast compared to mm -hmm. their bodies. And what, do, what does that mean when it comes to these uh, sports that have high impact? Yeah, so... Uh, as you said, a child's head grows disproportionately fast compared to their body. So their head is larger than their body you know, compared to an adult. So it does give that bobblehead effect. And I hear all the time like, oh, they're just kids. They don't hit that hard or they don't, you know, they don't hit that much. And it's just not true. Mm -hmm. They're not coming into collisions with the same speed that the older athletes are. And I think that's where we get that misconception from. But these younger athletes do, you know, because of that bobblehead effect, their brain feels the force that's similar to their high school and college counterparts. So the force actually on the brain, uh, that kind of whiplash effect moves the brain within the skull at a force really similar to the older players. So they are kind of feeling that same magnitude. And even the young players can hit their heads hundreds of times just in one season. Uh, I think we are seeing um, improvements. But, you know, even, you know, newer studies are showing that these athletes can hit their heads hundreds of times, you know, averaging around 250, 300, uh, depending on the age and the uh, particular team, but hundreds of times in that youth season is much shorter than a high school season. So when you really look at the number of hits per day, per practice, per game, it's on average very similar to the high school and college players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So two things I want to say to that. The first thing I just want to mention to to those listening, I want to encourage you to kind of listen through the whole episode because you yourself, Dr. Stam, you played sports, you know, throughout your entire childhood, right? And 
Yes. We're not saying don't let your kids play sports. We're going to talk about how you can have your children participate in sports like this without being subjected to this type of brain trauma. So we will talk about that. So I don't want to have everybody listening to think like we're just going to be talking about, you know, how um, damaging some of these sports can be. We also want to come the back half just talking about how we can keep our kids safer. So we will get into that. I also, while we, while you were just talking about that, the first part of your book, this was, this kind of really stood out to me. So I'm just going to read it because the last sentence really got me and it almost kind of made me a little emotional. So you start off, it's chapter one. It says, I start every presentation I give on the consequences of repetitive brain trauma and youth sports with a seven second video from a youth football practice. The athletes in this video are about eight or nine years old. So we're talking young. And as you mentioned, like some play football when they're age five, six. Two players are in an athletic crouch facing each other and surrounded by their teammates and coaches. The coach blows a whistle and the two young athletes run toward each other full speed. A bystander yells, go, go. They lower their heads and deliver a crashing blow to the tops of their helmets. In the background, the crowd lets out a ooh at the sight of the brutal hit. One player stands up quickly and walks away. The other young boy curls up into the fetal position on the grass, moaning and crying. It was like really emotional for me because I was like, Oh my gosh, like I I would never want to subject my child to anything like this. And of course, you kind of go on to say like this is actually not allowed in most cases when it comes to to football anymore anyways, this type of whatever they were practicing. But um that doesn't go to say that that stuff like this doesn't happen at every single practice and every single game because it does. I mean, we see it happen all the time. Yeah, so I just think this is such an important topic to be talking about. So why are concussions and repetitive brain trauma of particular concern for young athletes when we compare them to adults? And I just want to say that video that it's not supposed to happen. Those drills are supposed to be outlawed, but mm-hmm. they actually are still happening in some cases. Most mm-hmm. coaches aren't doing that anymore, but there was just a video that came out this past year of it happening uh, in a youth mm-hmm. sports setting. And, you know, there's so many people excited about those impacts, but they're just not thinking about, you know, the consequences of that because you don't necessarily see them right away. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with youth athletes, the brain is rapidly developing, you know, when we're really young, but that doesn't stop as we go through childhood and even, you know, adolescence into early adulthood. And that eight to 12 range is a time where there's a lot happening. There are a lot of structures that are reaching their peak in and size, we're making so many different connections in the brain. We're laying down myelin, which is like that insulation on our axons, mm-hmm. the part of the nerve that or neuron that's sending signals to other parts of the brain. You know, we're laying down that insulation that makes those signals travel faster. And it's possible that these processes can be disrupted by this. And I think that's something that's been overlooked in this particular area. It's something that we see from many other causes in the brain, we see lead poisoning affects children in a way that it doesn't affect adults because their brain is rapidly developing. Even trauma of other causes, you know, emotional trauma, abuse, those things can affect the brain. Uh, and, and it's worse when we're young. We've never really looked at this physical trauma in the same way, though, with sports. And I think that's something that we're just starting to consider a little bit more. And we really need to study much, much more. And that was kind of where my research uh, started from was this idea of, you know, when what's happening when our brains are rapidly developing and then we're hitting our head a lot. I mean, it makes sense. 
Yeah. And it seems so safe because, you know, it's, it's on a sporting field. It must be okay. But you know, if it was a child hitting their head against the wall, like you said earlier, you know, then we'd look at it with concern. But yeah. And I mean, regardless of the helmet, that's like a rapid acceleration deceleration. I mean, that's, you know, and your brain is going back and forth very suddenly. That's, it's not good (laughs) for anybody, even if you're wearing a helmet. And I love how you mentioned in your book as well, that research is actually, you know, very clearly lacking in this in this topic and that it's very difficult to run a you know a study on this with a controlled environment because well this is just like with with women in pregnancy it's very hard to study certain things certain medications because who wants to sign up their unborn baby for a study first of all nobody right you wouldn't want to mm-hmm. be in a study that's you know trying to see if a medication is safe during pregnancy or not you're not going to be able to get people volunteering for that study and there's not going to be parents that voluntarily want to have their kids hit over the head a bunch of times to see if it affects them long term. Nobody wants to sign up for that. It would be totally unethical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely unethical. So it's it's so hard because I know there's a lot of people that want, you know, that science to say this is absolutely going to happen if you expose your child to X amount of trauma to the brain during a sports season. We would love to have that type of information, but it's just not possible to to gather that information without having these controlled studies, which are, you know, nearly impossible because nobody's going to volunteer for them, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's where it gets really tough. Yeah. It's really tough. And, you know, we the only thing we can do right now is look backwards. So we studied former football players, you know, former NFL players, and then some studies with former football players who played through any level. And we looked back at the age they started playing and then studied them now. But we can't control for everything. We can't control right. for you know, alcohol and drug use. We can't control for yep. other lifestyle factors. And, and you can't get causation from looking back at something like that. Exactly. You can't say this is exact. This is why this happened. Yeah. Yeah. We can't say that. And so, you know, ideally we'd be able to follow kids throughout their whole lives, uh, you know, starting from when they're really young, some would go into sports, some wouldn't, but we wouldn't have answers for 50, 60, 70 years on a study like that. And we need to do something now. Uh, and so we're really acting with the best information we have at the time and acting with caution. And, you know, like you said, I love sports and I really think that it's about how can we get the most out of these sports while also doing the best we can to protect the brain now mm-hmm. And we can adapt that as we learn more, but you know we have to learn more. Yeah, yeah. So I know you've mentioned a few times already um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and I so I know people listening are probably like, "I'm sorry, what do you what did you just say?" (laughs) (laughs) Let's just go into depth about what exactly that is, and then talk about if parents should be concerned about that and and how they could possibly prevent that. Yeah, I think this is such an important question. And this is something that has really driven a lot of this research in recent years and our knowledge of concussions and repetitive brain trauma. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or you probably, if you've heard of it, you've heard of it as CTE. And that's a disease that you may have heard of because it's affected former NFL players. There's been a lot in the news about that over the past decade Mm -hmm. plus. Mm -hmm. And it also has been diagnosed in Boxers, hockey players, military veterans, you know, anybody with exposure to repetitive brain trauma, and that is most commonly in sports, but uh, an, another understudied group is um, victims of domestic violence. It has been diagnosed in a, a woman, the only case, one of the two cases of women 
was in a victim of domestic violence. But really, your brain doesn't know what hits it, just knows it's repetitively being hit. So, you know, it's a disease that is like Alzheimer's in some ways. Um, It involves a protein in the brain that's similar to Alzheimer's disease. And um, this protein becomes toxic, essentially, and it leads to difficulties with cognition, behavior, mood. It can have Parkinson's-like symptoms uh, associated with it, too, some motor symptoms. And it's really just devastating, you know, as Alzheimer's would be and other neurodegenerative diseases like that. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we have seen primarily tied to individuals who have had exposure to repetitive impacts. Now, because of all the media attention it's received in recent years, I've heard a lot of parents concerned that, you know, if your child plays a few years of youth football, for example, that they're going to get CTE. And really, the research doesn't support that. So I really want, I want to say now that you know, CTE, while the repetitive impacts and that being a potential concern is an important thing to think about, it's really not the main problem when thinking just about a kid playing you know, youth football, for example. Research has shown that the more years you play and the more impacts you sustain over a lifetime, a career in a lifetime, uh, then your risk is higher and higher. Yeah. So somebody playing, for example, just four years of high school football are, they're probably not going to reach a number that will lead to them getting CTE. Mm-hmm. In fact, the study showed that if you had four years or less of, of uh, play, and you know that's not perfect, but it's a, a proxy for the total number of impacts you might sustain, that four years or less, you're, you were 10 times less likely to get CTE. While there were mm-hmm. some people that did, it was just a few in the study that I'm referencing. But if you played 15 years or more, your risk was 10 times higher. So okay. really if we can limit impacts as much as possible, we're really going to decrease risk of developing CTE. Um, That seems to be consistent across the research thus far. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what is there as far as treatment for CTE? Yeah, that's a great question. We can't even diagnose it during life right now. Mm. And so if we can't diagnose it during life, we can't do any kind of clinical trials to look at, Mm. you know, who to look at treatments because who do you treat? We don't know if somebody has CTE or Alzheimer's disease. So how are they diagnosing this? Is this like post-mortem? Like what? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Right now it's all post-mortem diagnoses. And and I did research at the CT Center in, at Boston University. Oh, and they're so doing a, Yeah, they're doing a lot of research right now to try to figure out how to diagnose it during life. Huh. And there's a lot of promise uh, with PET scans. So they inject this radioactive substance that binds to that protein in the brain. Okay. Yeah. And then you can see that light up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that has, is showing so much promise, but it's just not quite there yet. And a a big part of that is that unfortunately the people who are being studied, we can't actually look at their brain and compare what we see on the images to their actual brain until they pass away, unfortunately. So this is just very slow research because we want them to keep their brain as long as possible, right? You know, we want them to stay healthy and, and, you know, as long as possible. So it's, it's just the nature of that type of research. But I will say that a lot of those symptoms like depression, anxiety, some of the cognitive issues, you know, those are things that can be helped with, you know, depression, there's medication, there's therapies, there's uh, different uh, types of options for cognition as well. So there, there are aspects of this that can be treated. Those symptoms can be treated, but we just don't have a way of treating the actual disease and the protein in the brain at this point. So let's talk about some of the myths about 
brain injury in children, and then concerns about ways to improve safety in youth sports. Yeah. there. One of the reasons I wrote the book was because there were just so many things that I was reading about, uh, you know, myths about brain trauma. One of them we already covered being that, you know, you don't have to hit that hard uh, or the kids don't hit that hard. You know, one big myth is that you, you don't actually even have to hit your head to have a concussion or to have the effects of these repetitive impacts. You mentioned that whiplash effect and mm-hmm. that brain moving back and forth in the skull, a blow to the body that affects the brain like that uh, makes the brain move in the skull can still have consequences for the brain. So that's an important myth. You know, I also always hear things like, you know, well, you can get a concussion riding a bike or you can get a concussion, you know, in a car accident or, you know, things like that in daily life. There's always risk. And that's totally true. There is risk in things that we do in daily life, but you don't hit your head repetitively, you know, 20 times on every bike ride. Right. 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 So that's, that's a, there's a huge difference there. (laughs) There's a huge difference there. Yeah. Yeah. And those repetitive impacts add up and have uh, consequences. I think that's an important thing to think about. Yes, there's risk in other things, but we're not intentionally going into other things in life repetitively hitting our head all the time. So that, that's an important difference. And one big myth that I think is so important is that you can be a successful athlete and not hit your head repeatedly as a kid. So Tom Brady didn't play tackle football until he was in high school. And I don't think anybody would say he'd be better had he played when he was younger, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Jerome Bettis was a, a all city bowler until he was in high school or, you know, through eighth grade, he was an all city bowler. Michael Strahan didn't even play until he was in 12th grade. So I think that's a really important thing. There are many successful athletes that maybe played flag football or played other sports and, you know, that playing multiple sports, not specializing, but playing multiple sports is so important for becoming a great athlete. And mm-hmm. you can play versions of these sports that don't involve repetitive brain trauma, still learn so much about the sports themselves, you know, the rules, that kind of thing. Still gain all of those benefits of playing sports, being on a team, mentorship, um, camaraderie, all of that. Mm-hmm. But you just don't hit your head repeatedly. And then potentially transition into that when you're a little bit older and your brain has had more time to develop. Of course, it's not totally done developing, but the risks seem to be lower if you give a little bit more time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I know everybody listening is probably saying, well, like, what do you suggest as far as children participating in, in these youth sports, football, soccer? I mean, my little man who's four, does soccer. Of course, all they're doing is just kicking the ball across the field. They're not doing much else, you know, at this age. But what do you suggest as far as, you know, keeping them safer and not subjected to uh, repetitive concussive brain trauma? Yeah. So soccer, I think, is a great example to start with. So soccer has banned heading before age 11 and then greatly limited that uh, before age 13. So mm-hmm. I think the limitation is 25 headers a week in that 11 to 13, 11 to 12 range. I don't know that that's being well regulated, especially if kids are playing in multiple leagues, but it's still, it's a step, right? So at least they're not heading when they're younger. They're just learning all the other skills involved yeah. in the game. And that's happening not just here. Uh, there, there's a push for that in Europe, in Australia. So it's actually happening worldwide now um, that they're starting to implement similar changes like that. Yeah. Hockey, uh, you know, hockey is huge in Canada. It's big, you know, in the U.S. and growing in the U.S. 
hockey has banned checking before age 13. And some leagues are actually before age 15. Hmm. And the sport in the U.S., since that went, went into effect, they're seeing huge increases in numbers of, of kids playing. And I think a really important thing with that, too, is that we've had research that shows that concussions are down, uh, impacts are down because of those changes uh, at the younger ages. Mm-hmm. And the kids still want to play. I think that's such an important thing because some people will say, well, you know, if they can't hit the kids, then they don't want to play. They just want to play like the the big kids do or like mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. pros do. But studies have shown that the kids just enjoy playing hockey. They don't need to have checking in order to enjoy it. They still love playing. So I think that's an important piece. Um, and it's been, it's been really successful that, that ban before age 13. The issue with football is that football doesn't have a governing body the way that hockey and soccer do. Mm. So you know, USA Hockey covers almost all of the leagues for youth hockey. Yeah, yeah. And so if they make a change, it's affecting everyone. Everyone, okay. Yeah, but with football, you have Pop Warner, you have USA Football. Mm. And if one of them were to make a change, the other one could just say, oh, well, come play in my league. Mm. So you're, it's highly unlikely that we're going to see that change come through you know, just the, the leagues themselves yeah, uh, because there's risk for them financially if they make those changes. So I just advocate for, you know, delaying tackling in football. And I, I would love to see that being a mandated thing in some form. But, you know, for parents, really, if you if your child plays flag football when they're young, it's a great way to learn about the game. There are new forms of football coming around that you can uh, kind of transition into tackle. So a uh, tackle bar, I think, is really cool. There are these bars that are put on the back and the the defensive player puts their arms around the offensive player and instead of tackling, they, they grab the bars off the back and pull the bars off. Mm. So you're kind of transitioning into the the skill of tackling in some mm-hmm. some form, but you're not actually finishing the play with a tackle. Yeah. So I think that's a cool way to transition in. And if you can delay until at least middle school, if not high school, those repetitive impacts, you know, the odds of having any disruption in, in that development, the brain development, and the odds of getting CTE are both really low. And you can still get all the benefits of playing. So I know that's easier said than done because there's a lot of community pressure. There's a lot of a lot more that goes into it. But uh, that's what I would advocate for. Okay, so I have two questions coming off of that. The first is, so from what I understood from you saying, there's essentially no rules for the younger kids when it comes to tackle for football. There's, I mean, you can start tackling as young as, you know, five or six when you start. So in some leagues, yes, they'll go as young as five or six. It does depend on uh, in different communities. And I think there's more of a push now, even just throughout some of those leagues that the very young players, your five and six year olds are, are more likely to play flag. Yeah. But uh, and there are rules, I should say now, too, where um, they are trying to limit the amount of time that athletes are tackling in practice uh, per week, which is a good thing. Not always as effective as it might seem, uh, because if a coach mm-hmm. just wants to get all of those impacts crammed into a shorter amount of time, they might actually end up hitting more. And there's right. research to show that. Mm. The coaches are doing a good job of really trying to limit impacts. It's it's better than it used to be. Uh, and there are you know rules about um, lowering your head and and they're trying to teach better technique. Although as a kid, you know, you just, you get out there and how much of that really stays and how much of it goes out the window when you're trying to make a play. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. 
but yeah, they, they can start tackling young and, you know, there's no like unified age that is, is appropriate Mm -hmm. or or, uh, considered appropriate among the leagues anyway. Yeah. So, and I know you had mentioned this and, and people listening might be like, well, give me an exact age. And I'm sure you can't do that. But as you mentioned, you know, trying to delay the entrance into something like tackle football as long as possible to kind of preserve that brain growth, um, especially when it's happening so rapidly. Is there like a suggested age range where you would say, okay, you know, the brain growth has has gotten to a point where it's, you know, more steady, it's not rapid as it was when they were, you know, eight, nine, and 10. And it might be a little bit better to start now as opposed to when they're smaller. Is is there is that a thing or yeah. there's really no good answer for that? What do you think? It, it's tough. You know, if we really wanted to say, we're going to wait until the brain is totally done developing, we wouldn't start playing until we were 25. And that's just unrealistic too, you know? So we have to balance the science with reality. And in the world we live in. And what we found in our research studies was um, we used age 12 uh, in several of our studies. And we found that our former NFL players, for example, uh, had differences in their brain and differences with things like um, some of their higher cognitive thinking, judgment, impulsivity, things like that. Uh, and memory and learning. We saw some differences in them based on those who started playing younger or younger than age 12 or age 12 and older. So those who started younger than age 12 were worse off. But then we had, you know, other research where we just saw it as the younger you were, the worse off you were. And I think Mm. it's really important to know that 12 isn't a magic number and it's not right for every structure in the brain because different structures have different peaks and different development trajectories. Yeah. But I think that, you know, that research Suggested age 12, I think if you even give it a couple more years until they're, you know, starting high school, if you combine our research, it suggests that, you know, at least before age 12 or the younger, the younger you are, the worse off you are combined with that research that says, you know, four years or less decreases the risk for CTE. You know, if it was my child, I would have a hard time with them playing, you know, a high contact sport with a, that has high risk of brain trauma in general. But you know, I think if they really wanted to play, it would be, you know, high school, that 14 range right around there. I think that would be my, mo- that would make me the most comfortable yeah. in a yeah. still somewhat uncomfortable situation. But Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I know you talked a lot about uh, CTE and, you know, this is something that happens with, you know, repetitive play over years and years and years. Have Mm -hmm. you seen anything in your research as far as, you know, kids who grow up playing, you know, youth football, for example, and then move on into high school football, and then essentially end their career? Are you are you seeing anything in the research that that shows anything significant happening to their brains after having, you know, say eight to 10 years of of football impact or? There is you know, more risk, the more you play. And uh, there are people who just played through high school who have been diagnosed with CTE. And I think that's Mm -hmm. an important thing because it's, I think it's labeled a lot as a disease of professional athletes. Mm -hmm. And while it's not, I'm not saying it's common and we don't know how common it is yet because we can't diagnose it during life. It's not, we can't say it's common, but we, we know what happens. You know, Mm -hmm. there are, are definitely people, I think the youngest diagnosed case was 17 years old. 
And did so, that person pass away? Is that how you determined yes, it? Yeah, they oh. passed away. I can't I remember if that was a, a sport-related like brain trauma injury. Um, okay. injury. Yeah. But there have been cases where, you know, people who passed away from a ver- from variety of things. I know some were sport-related head injury or okay. car accidents, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that were studied and and they've seen, you know, 17, 18, 25-year-olds who just played through high school who have mm-hmm. been diagnosed. So it can happen. I don't want people to think that, oh, I played high school football and or my husband played high school football and you know, he has struggles with depression. It must be CTE. Like, don't think that because it's there's so many causes. And I know that's something that can happen where people think, well, it must be related to this. And we don't know that. Yeah. And there's so many causes and depression can be treated. And I think that's an important thing to say. But yeah, it's not just a disease of professional athletes. But I will say that you know, the number of years seems to me- to be important, but simply playing at a young age doesn't mm-hmm. And as far as developing CTE. So if you had somebody who played from 8 to 18 and another person who played from 14 to 24, it would be more of the total exposure that mattered. They would both be at the same risk because they both had a similar amount of exposure to gotcha. repetitive brain trauma. So playing young has more of a, a potential effect on brain development than it does on developing CTE. Okay, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And I am a, I'm just a huge proponent of education and learning more. It while mm-hmm. sometimes may be scary, it's providing facts and allowing parents to come up with an informed decision. So, you know, topics that we talk about here on the podcast and especially the one today is not meant to scare anybody. It's just to allow you to know more and be more educated about a topic and then be able to make an informed decision for your children, for yourself, et cetera. But I always mm-hmm. like to talk about that because none of these topics are, are meant to be scary and they're not meant to say, oh my gosh, your kids in football, pull them out. <laughs> you know, like right. that's not what we're yeah. saying. We're just trying to give you all of the information so that you can make a more informed decision or, you know, maybe even switch your kid to, like you said, like flag football or some of these other options mm-hmm. that you might that you might have. Yeah. I think also the the community pressure can be really tough. I have a, a good friend that has a 12-year-old and felt so much pressure from friends to let mm-hmm. him play. He felt fr- pressure from friends. His father got a lot of pressure from the other you know men in the community to let him play football because he's a good athlete. And I think knowing those talking points too, Mm-hmm. To be able to articulate well, like why you're making that decision, if you decide to to just wait until they're a little older, I think is really helpful and important. That you know, it's it's your child's health, and no one has the right to say like, oh, well, we want him to play on the team because we need him because we want to win. When it, when mm-hmm. your reason for not having them play is because you're concerned about their health and their long term health. Yeah, I'm interested to hear. Are you currently working on any research, and if so, like what is, what are you looking at right now? Yeah, I have several um, projects. One, I'm collaborating with some people in my uh, department where I work on a biomechanics type project. So looking at repetitive brain trauma in club sport athletes in the college level mm-hmm. uh, and how that affects their their posture and their stand. Their, oh. you know, it's kind of a standing on a balance plate kind of thing. And so both looking at post-concussion and those who sustain a concussion, but also just repetitive brain trauma and how that affects it. Yeah. We actually have a study right now that we're trying to recruit for, for um, hockey 
parents, so parents of, of youth hockey players, looking at sports, sports specialization and concussion and how you know their thoughts on sports specialization kind of influence their beliefs on concussions too. You know, if you're yeah. somebody who's looking to get a college scholarship, does that affect that? So those are a couple of the projects. One, another project with rugby as well that we're working on. So I've got uh, several little things yeah. going on. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> so I went to Springfield College and rugby was pretty big there. And I had never been exposed to rugby prior to that. And we would go to these rugby games, you know, on the weekends or whatever. And I had a few friends that played and, oh my gosh, <laughs> like yeah, I would leave just, I'm, I almost feel like it's like more for entertainment than anything else because it is a brutal sport. Oh my gosh. So brutal. Uh, I, uh, I had never seen it, you know, gr- growing up in the Midwest, it wasn't quite as big here yet. Mm. Uh, and I hadn't seen it until I moved out to Boston and my background's in athletic training. And I was giving you know medical coverage for uh, an event of rugby game uh, at Boston University. And I don't think I took a breath for like the first 10 minutes. <laughs> I had never seen it. And it was I was covering it for the first time. You're like, was, I am going to be really sport. busy today. <laughs> yes. I was very lucky. The the oh. other team that was playing was not as lucky as, as we were. And I, I just, I don't know how I got so lucky that we had almost nothing happen. Oh my gosh. It is a brutal sport, but yeah. also, you know, a, a very loved sport. You know, it's, it's starting to grow a lot around, around the U S and it's huge worldwide. So yeah. 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 All right. I'm going to, I'm going to dive into a few questions from the community. Is there anything you wanted to add to the first part of the conversation here or what do you think? Yeah. I think I just want to reemphasize what you had said too, that I love sports and I think that every child should have the opportunity to play sports have had such a wonderful impact on my life Mm -hmm. and a huge reason why I'm here doing the research that I'm doing. And uh, I think every kid should have that opportunity, but I just think we can do it in a a safer way. At Mm -hmm. least, you know, Delaying those impacts till they're older, you know. So I, I don't want anyone listening to this to just pull their kids out of sports because mm-hmm. you know, there are consequences to that too. It's just how can we how can we play safely is the key. Yeah, I, I love how you started off the book with, okay, let's first talk about how incredibly good sports are for our kids. You know, we don't want to be pulling the kids from sports because I mean. Yes. Sports are, inc- first of all, they keep kids out of trouble, first and mm-hmm. foremost, especially as they get into that teenage year. This gives them something to really work towards, kind of become obsessed with, you know, like just in a good yeah. way, not in a bad way, to learn how to be part of a team, part of a community, learning how to help each other out, learning new things. It's it's so important for kids to be involved with sports. I loved a rule that my mom always had, which was, Lindsay, I don't care what you do. You are playing one sport per season, whatever it might be. It could be horseback. It could be whatever. It didn't have to be something that was necessarily with the school. It could be anything, dance, whatever. And I tried so many sports growing up. I mean, I probably played them all just to see what I liked. And it's really nice to be part of that community and to learn something about a new sport and to figure out what you like and don't like. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really important for our kids. Oh, for sure. And those playing multiple sports, trying different things is so important. And, you know, the, the leadership skills, the, there's so many, there's so much evidence of just the emotional benefit of being part of a team, you know, and it's like I said, from in my life, I was a three sport athlete through high school and 
would have played in college, but I went to a bigger university and went the sports medicine route instead. And I can't say enough about that. And it was so important for me to say that early in the book because mm-hmm. I didn't want people to say, well, she just is anti-sport. Like she doesn't right. get it. She's right. Some scientist in a lab who doesn't understand. And that's not it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Okay, so we have some questions and I think some of these might be slightly repetitive, but I think it's always good to kind of just clarify and reemphasize. So let's see here. My son loves flag football and wants to play tackle football. What are the odds of a brain injury? So that's that's a tough one, but I'll kind of let you take that. Yeah. So the risk in tackle is substantially higher than flag. There was one study that made it seem like they were very similar, but there are some issues with, you know, the sample size in that study. So if mm. you hear about, you know, that really most of the research would say that the risk is higher in tackle. Mm-hmm. And there was a really interesting study that came out recently done by uh, this group from the CDC that showed that just repetitive impacts in tackle mm. were substantially higher, mm-hmm. really putting numbers to something that already kind of makes sense, but we hadn't had good numbers on that yet. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it really showed that when you have injuries in, in head injuries, brain injuries in flag, it's mostly from like falling down or accidental collisions. It's not that inherent part of every play. The research on the actual rate of concussions is it varies, uh, and it's hard to say. You know how likely it is. I will say that I think parents have, in, in all honesty, kind of an unrealistic idea of how high the risk is. Um, there are studies that showed that some parents thought like, you know, 25 to 50% of players are going to have a concussion in the season. And in reality, it's really probably single digits. Yeah. So, you know, the, while it's the risk is a lot higher in tackle, it's, it's still, you know, not like every player is getting a concussion. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's really like single digit percentages of, of risk, a number of players sustaining a concussion in the season. Yeah. It's still a lot, but not quite as bad as people tend to think, but yeah. the repetitive impacts are are definitely a concern too. Yeah. And and the next question here, which basically goes right along with that, is, which is, uh, is it one big hit we should worry about or multiple hits across a lot of years? And so we're yeah. looking at the multiple hits across a lot of years. That's going to be the most detrimental, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important point that there's no evidence that one concussion is going to give you CTE, mm-hmm. right? There's no evidence of that at all even just a couple of concussions. We're really talking about those repetitive impacts happening over years that are leading to those long-term effects. Now, every concussion is different. There's the saying that when you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. You know, every every concussion mm-hmm. is different. Most concussions, the vast majority resolve in, you know, longer than we used to think, but still within, you know, three weeks to a month, most mm-hmm. people are symptom-free and doing really well. So, you know, there are those cases where they can, you know, there can be a concussion that has lasting consequences. That is more common when you have multiple concussions or when you don't manage that concussion right the first time. 
So if somebody goes back too early, for example, or if somebody doesn't report their concussion and they keep playing and then they have another blow to the head, yeah. th- uh, those are two scenarios that really increase the risk of having prolonged symptoms and poorer outcomes. Yeah, makes sense. Have football helmets really, quote, come so far, end quote, that it is safe for our young kids to play? So I don't know anything about this or football helmets, but I don't know if you do. Yeah. Like, have they been trying to make improvements in them or what? what's going on with that? That's such, that's such an important question. I hear that a lot. And helmets are definitely better than they used to be. Mm-hmm. But helmets, if you actually look on the helmet and the warning that's on there too, helmets are designed to prevent skull fractures. And they do a great job of preventing skull fractures. And that's so important. Helmets were designed originally in part because so many boys were dying on the field because of skull fractures You know, in the early 1900s. So quite a long time ago, and they've really progressed and gotten a lot better, but the brain still moves in the skull. So there will never be a concussion proof helmet because the brain still moves within the skull and you don't actually even have to hit your head to have a concussion. Mm -hmm. So while technologies come a long way and there may be changes that make small differences, really, you know, helmets are not going to be the thing, like the, the magic thing that solves this problem. Right. I also want to give the the resource, uh, Virginia Tech, if you just Google Virginia Tech helmet ratings, they have ratings for helmets. Um, so some do perform a little bit better than others. But when you look mm-hmm. at football helmets, the vast majority of them have the same rating and do the same job. And within the top five, you can have ranges in price from, you know, somewhere in that range, $300 to like $1,700. So just getting a more expensive helmet doesn't mean you're protecting your brain anymore. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's going to do the same thing. The same, same benefit. All right here. Oh, this is a good one. What sports would you let your children play? (laughs) Put you right on the spot. (laughs) Yeah. My husband and I are huge volleyball fans. Yeah. So that would be a big one. Yeah. And, you know, I would want, I would want them to play a variety of sports. Like I I would love for them to try a lot of different sports. I would love for them to play play flag football. I played flag football quite a bit when I was a kid. I I would try to avoid the repetitive impacts. So I think that would be the key thing. I wouldn't say a hundred percent no to any sport. I just, it it would be harder for me to have uh, my child play football, but I think I would have to, I would delay until high school mm-hmm. at least. And I'd have to be really comfortable with the coaching staff that okay. the coaching staff yeah. was taking all of the steps to really prevent repetitive brain trauma in practice, really limiting that. And there are some really successful high school programs, by the way, that have won state championships that don't tackle in practice at all or tackle just in Ooh, a few I practices love that. early in the season. Yeah. Yeah. So it's totally possible to be great and have a great program and not tackle much at all. They just, you know, work on fundamentals and uh, they're, they stay healthier, not only with the brain, but their bodies are healthier to play. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, I can, I, I think to myself, (laughs) I was watching football the other day and I thought to myself, if somebody hit me like that right now, I would probably break into a million pieces. (laughs) Like, and I'd like to think I'm in pretty good shape. Like I work out, I have been lifting more weights because after four babies, everything, you know, it, it lifting weights is crucial as you get older, I do feel. And I just, I can't imagine 
getting hit with that type of impact, never mind getting hit with that type of impact over and over and over and over again. It's like mind boggling to me. Of course, these kids are, you know, obviously a lot younger than I am, but yeah, it's just, yeah, it's hard on your body no matter what age you are for sure. I was watching a game the other day too, and there was a big hit and, and the announcers were like, Oh, what a hit. And I was just like, don't say that because that makes people don't encourage this entertainment. Exactly. Exactly. So this question is interesting because we talked about this. It says, do you agree with the NFL stance on no tackle before age 14? Do they have that stance? I don't think they have that stance. Yeah, because we were just talking about that because you said with the different organizations for football and all of that, that'd be interesting to kind of look into that. Yeah. I, I agree with that stance. Absolutely. I would yeah. advocate for no tackle before 14. I think that that's a stance that was brought. Um, maybe, maybe this comes from the Brett Favre PSA that came out mm. recently where he was advocating for no tackle before 14. And that's actually from the concussion legacy foundation. Yeah. Uh, that's a group that partnered with us at, at uh, the Boston university CTE center. Chris Nowinski was one of the founders of that center and, runs the the Concussion Legacy Foundation, uh, along with um, Dr. Robert Cantu. And they really advocate for uh, no tackle before 14. And that's something that many NFL players have come out and said, actually, Brett Favre in that PSA, Drew Brees, he actually runs a a flag football league that goes through into high school. He's started a a league around the country. You know, there are many that have come out and, and advocated for that. So if you go to the Concussion Legacy Foundation website, you can actually find a whole section on flag before 14 and all of the NFL players that advocate for that and former coaches. And um, there's a lot more information there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Perfect. And we'll put some of these, we'll put all these resources into the show notes for anybody that wants to reference them. All right. So a lot of the other ones are pretty repetitive and I wanted to ask you two random questions before we sign off here. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to a new mom, what would it be? It could be about anything. It doesn't have to be about what we talked about. Yeah, I think just you know, sticking with your gut. I think that you know a lot of parents that I talk to about this topic, and I think this applies across the board, you know, they don't want their kid to play tackle yet, but everybody in the community does. And so they feel all this pressure, you know, I think sticking with that gut feeling, you know, it's about the health of your child and also educating yourself. Like I mentioned earlier, to be able to kind of articulate your reasoning, I think is really helpful because it's hard to stick to your gut when people are saying all of these things and you're in the moment and, and you're not sure what to say. And I think it's helpful to, you know, kind of have a few talking points that are like, these are my reasons why this is how how it's going to be. And this is why I'm advocating for my child this way. Yeah, no, I think that's great. So the second question is, if you could make one meal for your entire family that everybody would eat, that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Yeah. So this is going to sound potentially kind of weird to some people, but I make a lasagna pizza. Ooh. Ooh. Tell me more about this. (laughs) Yeah. uh, It's like carb overload, but yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing. (laughs) So I take pesto. I make pesto every year from basil in the garden and just put it in the freezer so I have it handy. Oh, yeah. So I put pesto down uh, on a pizza crust and then have some like two or three cooked lasagna noodles and and put that out on the pizza and then put, you know, 
mozzarella, ricotta, Parmesan, sometimes some mushrooms and maybe some cherry tomatoes if I have it and just bake that up. And it's very thick and like I said, carb overload, but it's really tasty. And pasta and pizza is amazing. I, there's a restaurant in town uh, in Madison that has several different pasta and pizza combinations and I fell in love with it. And that's where this came that from. sounds really delicious. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and put that on my list of things. And I don't think I've ever had pasta on pizza before. I oh, I, I don't think I have. It. It's a good combination. Like I said, it's it's a carb overload. If you're if you're watching your carbs, maybe that's not not the recipe. But I think it's nice, like the night if I'm going to do a long run or something the next yeah. day too. Like it's actually oh, yeah. a really good right feeling. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Stan, for taking time out of your day to tell us more about this topic. I think it's an important one, and I hope that the people listening got some new information to help make some informed decisions. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, take care. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.